This is the Monday, July 16, 2018 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes for a brand new episode every other Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. In this episode, our time machine witnesses a pivotal moment in world history and the evolution of European monarchies, the massacre of the Romanov family ending their 400-year reign at Nicholas II. Our guide on this journey is Helen Rappaport, who brings us the race to save the Romanovs, the truth behind the secret plans to rescue the Russian imperial family. Amidst the carnage of the Great War and the Russian Revolution, amidst the carnage of the Great War and Russian Revolution, myths and outright lies about the family have clouded the popular view of the Tsar's end. But here, for the first time, thanks in part to the opening of post-Soviet archives, the true story of what happened to the Tsar, Tsarina, and their five children can at last be told. Helen F. Rappaport is a British historian, best-selling author, and former actress who studied Russian at Leeds University. She specializes in her twin loves of the Victorian era and revolutionary Russia. Her previous books include The Romanov Sisters, Victoria, the Last Days of the Romanovs, and Conspirator, Lenin in Exile. Visit her at HelenRappaport.com or at Helen Rappaport on Twitter. That last name is spelled R-A-P-P-A-P-O-R-T. Okay, now that we've arrived at the door of the Winter Palace in St. Petersburg, Russia, 100 years ago this month in July 1918, Let's meet Helen Rappaport and join the race to save the Romanovs. I'm joined on the line from the United Kingdom by Helen Rappaport, author of The Race to Save the Romanovs, the truth behind the secret plans to rescue the Russian imperial family. Thank you for making time to chat with the History Author Show. It's very nice to be with you. Well, it's nice to be with you as well, and it's nice that your publisher put this book in my hands because I probably wouldn't have picked it up on my own. I thought that I knew this story, which I suppose many listeners think that they know it. Yeah. You mentioned in your introduction that you thought your next book would go back to your other historical love, the Victorian era. So what was it about these final days of the Tsar's family that drew you into the book? Well, it's been bugging me, Dean, actually, for about 10 years that 
I felt every book I'd ever opened on the Romanovs repeated the same account of the end of the story and the whole aborted asylum stroke evacuation plan for the Romanovs repeated the same accusations against King George V and also a lot of erroneous statements are made about it. A lot of mythology, um, things that didn't happen, were thought to have happened. And I thought, I'm just getting so fed up with hearing everyone repeat the same assertions about what did and didn't happen in 1917-18. And I thought, it's time to put that part of the story under the microscope because it struck me no single person in any way shape or form can be made responsible for what went wrong and basically um, I'm not seeking to exonerate King George V at all but I do think it's time we apportion the blame a bit more equally and fairly. I love that you're looking around and just tired of reading and rereading all this repetition of the myths. And that's what we call in journalism, as I'm sure you know, the circular reporting, right? You cite one source and then someone oh, else yeah, cites it. Oh, yeah, but they all repeat each other and they <laughs> yeah. repeat the same errors. And it infuriated me because I thought, <laughs> hang on a minute, have none of you actually said, let's go right back to primary sources Let's trace back and find the original source of this statement. Because the trouble with the Romanov story, particularly the end of it, is, is there is so much mythology and wishful thinking attached to it, especially when you get into the area of all the false claimants and Anastasia and all that nonsense. So I felt it was time to really do a bit of myth-busting here and really unpick the evidence. And I guess, in a way, this book is certainly much more journalistic than any of my other history books, because I do approach it as an investigation. You wanted to know what really happened and tell us. And I found that that drew me right into the book because I'm not a Russian historian. I do like your other area, the Victorian era. But this, I I think probably a lot of people share with me where they think, okay, we know what happened and it's in the middle of the Great War and there's so much mm. exciting, so much tragic <laughs> stuff going on. We just pick that up and move on and we accept these myths, many deliberately planted by the Bolsheviks. Exactly. And, you know, we have that, we have the fog of war, then we have a whole century pass before we even get anything like finding their bodies so that we could have those important pieces of evidence, plus fictionalized dramatic rescue plots that people tend to glom onto and, and embrace and repeat. It was amazing to me that you managed to weed through all of that. You describe it as starting to plow a very broad furrow. Yeah. And when I read that and pictured it, I love metaphors like that for writing. I started picturing you going through the plow and you're hitting the rocks, which are the, the lies <laughs> in the, the myths, rock. right? Yeah, yeah. breaking my Right. Yeah, can, yeah. Can... I mean, the thing with this story is, of course, the minute it happened, the minute the family were murdered, the Bolsheviks and later, of course, the Soviets manipulated and lied and confused people and put out disinformation about what had really happened. I mean, if, if you're looking for the origin of fake news, well, it certainly started in Russia in, nine, you know, the minute the Bolsheviks seized power. And the whole Romanov story, at, you know, from the point of their murder is full of fake news and, and confusion. 
a little bit like what Stalin sought to sow after they found Hitler's body, just to let people wonder if he was still let alive. Let people and think what they like, yeah. Yeah, hmm. create a little bit of question. So when you go to that field and you know that there's rocks under there and lies and myths and you, you don't want to have your horse throw a shoe or break that plow blade, how do you decide where to start plowing so that you can get a story here that will end up flowering and being the truth at last? Well, first of all, with every book I write, I wouldn't write it unless I could offer up new information and seek out new sources. And the only way you can do that is start thinking more laterally. Start, you know, departing from the, the straight road that everyone else has trudged down and go down side um, alleys and look for new evidence, different points of view. And with this story, uh, as well as doing that, I, I called up and I sought out every single piece of paper in the story that has been cited and re-examined it and re-evaluated it. But there's always an issue, unfortunately, with the murder of the Ronoff part of the story that you're never going to find all the evidence because, unfortunately, I think there were people who had things to hide, people who were embarrassed about what went wrong, about their own failures. And one particular stumbling block is getting into the royal archives of the various European monarchies because their archives are always private. Some are a complete closed book. Others you can see bits of. I mean, royal archives here are pretty good. But the, the one unquantifiable is you just cannot be sure how much of the material relating to this story has been redacted or just completely destroyed. It's amazing, the book that you put together here, The Race to Save the Romanovs, in light of all of that. I have a big slush pile. People are sending me books all the time. I suddenly pick up this one, yeah. and I saw two things I love. One, you mentioned going back to the primary sources, but the other, giving people their due that have had the end of their life overshadowed and lied about outright and just haven't been cared about. Yeah. And whatever people think of a, of a royal family, whatever they think of the Romanovs and the Russians, they were a family. Family, they had five children, and it's important to know in the historical record. I know that there's that temptation sometimes, even when you're reading a book, to skim. And honestly, if I find myself reading a book that's sent to me and I'm skimming or I'm not interested, it doesn't hold my interest, it's probably not one that I'm going to finish reading or one that I'm going to want to interview the author if it just doesn't hold my personal interest. Mm. Here, I was amazed. I found myself, I said, wow, I just picked up this book to check it out. And the next thing I know, I'm three quarters of the way through the race to save the Romanovs. And I don't know if you saw, I put up a picture on uh, our Instagram account of me walking past the Russian tea room with it. And somebody commented and said, oh, well, how convenient you happen to have the book with you. And I said, well, of course, I brought it out there and I just put it there because anything to oh, spread the word. Instagram? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I, I believe well, I tagged you. But oh, you're not. Okay. I probably oh, just tagged you, the publisher. You, can, you, can you send it to me? <laughs> I absolutely will. Yeah. And I will tweet it. I'm on <laughs> Twitter, I would love to tweet it. <laughs> All right, I will. I, yeah, I follow I, you. know, you. every author has this fantasy of some seriously famous person, like a TV star or a Hollywood star, as snapped getting on a train or sitting in their car reading your book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, we well see now if we were if we were not honest like the so many people with the Bolsheviks that covered up this story, we would just Photoshop them in with somebody. But we'll we'll, yeah. we'll just hope that somebody will. So there's many people out there with a Russian background who I think will find this particularly interesting. Yeah. If you care about the truth and history, and for me, I always say if I'm wrong because I've been told the wrong story. That's no problem to me. I want to know that I'm wrong. And here, I got this story so much wrong. I had no idea. I always pictured it as something completely different than what it is. And we'll get into that more. And people can learn about the full story here in the race to save the Romanovs. For instance, Tsar Nicholas abdicates and his fate hangs in the balance along with his wife and those five children. Mm. I always pictured and I'm sure I was always taught that this was an overthrow and this was a quick execution of the Tsar. But here we go. Here's a whole book of this amazing story about this window of time where they could have been saved, where their fates hang in the balance. Mm. So take us back to the state of the Great War at that moment, during that period, just when the Tsar agrees to give up power, why does he do it? He was put under enormous pressure to do it for fundamentally the sake of Russia, because Russia, as you know, in World War One, had suffered the most terrific heavy losses on the Eastern Front. It was a largely conscript army. It had become very demoralized. It had always been badly supplied, badly led. The lack of morale in the army was becoming an enormous problem, and there was mass hemorrhaging by desertion from the front. And things were in crisis with Russia in the war. And Nicholas, of course, had gone out to lead the troops, you know, as CNC at the front, as commander at the front. And he was persuaded that one of the reasons the revolution had broken was because of the collapse of public morale, lack of confidence in the war and and all that kind of demoralization. And the best thing he could do is step aside for the sake of the country. And the thing people don't realize is Nicholas was an incredibly deep, passionate patriot. He always, always thought of Mother Russia first. And he did what he thought was the right thing stepped aside. He allowed himself to be persuaded to abdicate in March 1917 after there were riots and disturbances in Petrograd. But the interesting thing that he did when he abdicated for the sake of Russia in hopes that this would unify the country is that he also took the decision to abdicate for his son. Now, there were many in Russia who were not averse to retaining some kind of constitutional monarchy with Alexei and a regent, what they didn't want was any more of Nicholas and Alexandra. But Nicholas abdicated on behalf of his son for two reasons. First of all, of course, the hemophilia that Alexei suffered from. Nicholas knew that his life expectancy, the boy's life expectancy at best, was going to be into his mid to late teens. And that, you know, there's no way that it, with the, that kind of the dice loaded against him, that he could take on the role of, of the onerous task of Tsar of Russia. But the other big reason was that as emperor and empress, Nicholas and Alexander would then be obliged to go into exile. And the one thing they could not bear the thought of was to leave Russia and leave their, their son behind. So 
He made the decision to abdicate. In a way, it was a relief for him. And he abdicated for his sickly son. And then, of course, the job, if you want to call it that, the, the poison chalice was passed to Nicholas's brother, Mikhail, his younger brother, who said, no, thank you very much. He didn't want the job either. So they just ended up leaving, and then there's this vacuum, and they're kind of wondering what's going to become of them. They're not they're not seeing this on the horizon. And I found that I was developing a real sympathy for the family. They go through a lot. I know that the Russian people go through a lot. Mm. But you can't, on the one hand, I guess, say that the czar is totally out of touch and isolated in his palace and then say, wait a minute, he, he should have known every last thing that was going on or everything going on. He's trying, as you said there, and that comes across in the race to save the Romanovs, to do the best thing always. for his people and for Russia. He always tried to do the best thing. And I think one of the most interesting things, and I make it in the book, is if he'd not been 600 miles away in Belarus at the front, commanding the army, if he had been in Zazgustilo at his palace when the revolution broke in Petrograd, there is no way Alexandra would have allowed him to abdicate. She would have hung on like grim death. <laughs> and she was appalled when she heard the news. So it could have been quite different, really. And can you imagine a modern leader going and leading from the front? It just wouldn't happen. We had President Andrew Jackson said that he would or threatened to. And also Zachary Taylor, who died in office, said he would if the in both cases if the southern states seceded from the Union. But to do it in this era and knowing all the horror there, it may not have been the wisest move for him, but who can know what the well, future is? He felt it was the right thing to do. Well, he felt he had to be with the army. His great love, actually, was the army. And it was interesting when he, he decided to take Alexei, his, the, the Tsarevich, with him to the front. They both heaved a sigh of relief and said, oh, isn't it wonderful we can escape all those women for a while? Because, <laughs> you know, there, there, Alexei got very fed up being cosseted by his overprotective mother all the time. And his sisters were very loyal and protective too, but he absolutely loved being at the front with his father. They had a wonderful time living at Army HQ together and both intensely, intensely loyal to their troops to the Russian army. And the Russian army, I mean, particular parts of the Russian army were equally intensely loyal to them, which is why some of them after the revolution, of course, after particularly after the Bolsheviks took over, had fled south and joined the whites and the counter-revolution. What a very human moment, this father and son with then five women, the mother and the four daughters, all together wanting to split up. In the final analysis, especially when they're stripped of all title and power and they're on the run, so to speak, or at least in, in limbo, I guess, more more like. Well, in captivity, yeah. how's the rest, effectively? Yeah, and just a family, yeah. you know, just a, they're just become a family then and looking at it two different ways. And that's really a poignant thing because it's easy to look at the cover here of the race to save the Romanovs and just see a smear of black and white faces and not realize each one is an individual and deserves to have their story told just so that we can have the full picture, if nothing else, of this czar. Well, you know what? The, I think the most crucial thing to that family was their love and devotion towards each other. And they absolutely could have coped with any situation, and they did. They coped admirably and without complaint through a year and a half of house arrest and captivity. 
all the time that they had each other, they could survive because the one thing they clung to was not being separated. And the other thing that really, really held them together, I have absolutely no doubt, and it made an enormous difference in their case, was their profound Russian Orthodox faith. Their religious faith kept them going. And, you know, they would have been quite contented if the provisional government or even later Lenin's government said, look, you can live in obscure exile in Crimea. That's where they wanted to go. They loved Crimea with a huge, huge passion. They just wanted to live in quiet obscurity and just be a family and be together. And they wouldn't themselves have have wished to be any kind of threat to the new government in Russia. But the problem for Lenin and the Bolsheviks was that all the time the Romanovs were in Russia, they were a threat because, you know, they could have been a rallying point for a counter-revolution. And that's why, in the end, they had to be murdered. You mentioned the illness of the young Tsarevich, Alexei. Yeah. That's another moment in the book where he's a hope at one point of the family and of Russia. And unfortunately, because of his illness, he slows down this flight to freedom. And yet they move at his pace. There's there's never any thought that I read in the book of leaving him behind or oh, no. trying to go oh, on no. without him or call for him later or anything, which would be easy to not only to do, but even just to fool yourself into thinking. How do you hope that the race to save the Romanovs fleshes out the caricature of this sickly young man? Well, he was an extraordinary young man. And although he was sickly on occasions, you know, there were times when his condition was in remission and there were times when he was actually quite well and healthy because after 1912 in Poland, when he had a terrible, almost fatal attack where the famous telegram was sent by Rasputin telling Zaritsa not to worry, he's going to recover. That was when Alexei nearly died. And then after he recovered from that attack, he was relatively well until the spring of 1918 when they were in Tobolsk, when he had a nasty accident in the house they're being held in and bashed himself and again had this terrible bleeding into the joints, which, and I mean, the suggestion is from the eyewitnesses who saw Alexei at the end as he left Tobolsk and was taken to Katrinburg is that he was at death's door and he was very, very weak. I won't say dying, but I think his chances were quite slim of surviving much longer. So, but he was a tragic young man, if only because he um, he had the most extraordinary courage in the way in which he dealt with his condition. And of course, it 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 in in a way it it encouraged a, a quality in him of in, incredible compassion for other people who suffered. He was always very compassionate about the stick and other people. And um, although as a young child, he'd been a complete pain in the neck and terribly um, naughty at times and (laughs) spoiled, as he he was growing up into a very interesting, very sensitive, very intelligent young man. We talk about this image of a race to save the Romanovs. You describe in the book Tsar Nicholas as, quote, forever a straw in the wind, susceptible to the influence of his more accomplished and domineering cousins. I wanted to ask if you think 
a different sort of leader as Tsar could have survived, could have gotten his family out of there. Maybe if he'd been a little more pushy, maybe if he'd been a little more strict and a little bit a little bit more tough, cut from a different cloth, his cousins here we have Kaiser Wilhelm and we have the King of England and we have all these guys that he knows, Spain, he's related to all these people, Queen Victoria, of course. He has this lineage of a lot of leaders we think of as tough and decisive. And I wondered if you think, had he not been I don't know if soft-hearted is the right word from reading the book, but if he'd had a tougher plan, been a, a different sort of man, do you think he could have gotten his family out of there? No, because he had no power to get them out. The tragedy of this story, really, when it, I boiled it down, is the minute Nicholas has abdicated and within a couple of days is placed under arrest by the provisional government over in Svazgoziolar at the palace, his wife and children are placed under arrest. Now, the minute they lose their power and are under arrest, they don't have the authority to order people to get them out of the country. This is the awful thing. They were totally at at the mercy of whoever was, you know, going to come up with a successful plan. And, And the thing is, initially, in those first couple of weeks, maybe, there could possibly have been an orderly evacuation of the family, you know, with the permission of the provisional government, who actually wanted them off their hands, with the help of the British and the Germans agreeing a white flag for the British ship to take them out. There could have been an evacuation if they'd acted really swiftly. But once the Romanovs really were captive and once mob rule was beginning to take over in Petrograd, and then after the Bolsheviks seized power in the autumn, the chances of getting them out were virtually nil. Because the one thing, I was astonished about this, the one thing no book, I honestly feel this, no book till mine has really taken proper account of, is the logistics, the geography, the weather, the distances that you would have had to get seven people to get them out of Russia to safety. I mean, they're vast distances. And the other problem that made it even more difficult was you couldn't have taken them immediately westward out through Europe because of the war, because of the Germans. So everything was kind of ten times more complicated. On top of that, the children had all gone down with measles just before the Tsar lost his power. And they were all very weak and sick. That was another thing counting against them, in that Alexander was very, very anxious that they should not be moved till they'd recovered properly. It's like everywhere you look, the cards were stacked against them. You mentioned Rasputin and his influence over the Tsarina. He's dead by the time the race to save the Romanovs starts. But what part does his legacy play in their ultimate fate? Well, it pays an enormous part in terms of the total demonization and vilification of Alexandra. And she and Rasputin, the the dreadful slander visited on both of them during the war years. I mean, the, the, the absurd levels of salacious gossip and accusation of all kinds of um uh, behavior between them, of them running, them running the show and Rasputin being this evil Machiavellian mad monk, as he was called. Well, he was neither. He wasn't mad and he wasn't a monk. <laughs> there was, had been such a campaign 
to smear her and Rasputin that by the time the revolution broke, you know, she was the, probably the most hated woman in Russia, if not in Europe. And this was one of the big, big problems in getting them out because there was this huge prejudice against Alexandra. Her own relatives in Europe didn't particularly like her. And for some reason throughout the war years, this mud had stuck that she and Rasputin were colluding with the Germans of all people and that they were German spies. Well, I mean, that couldn't have been further from the truth. They were both passionate patriots. But, you know, there was so much hostility to Alexandra that that in itself made it more difficult to find a place of asylum or refuge for them. No wonder they just wanted to take off that yoke, take off that harness. We talked about plowing as an image and just be a regular family. They did. That's all they wanted to do. Yeah. You know, in fact, the Kaiser started out very well. He said the trouble with Nicky, his cousin Nicky was, that he'd be much happier being a country gent growing turnip. (laughs) And he would have been. You give him a modest little country estate in England somewhere, and he would be perfectly happy to go out there, chop wood, dig the garden, and just be a family man. Nicholas's problem was he was, first and foremost, a father and a husband and a family man, and second, a czar. And he really always just wanted to be with his family. I mentioned Rasputin, and he's off the scene here, physically at least, not his legacy, when the race to save the Romanovs begins. But you introduce us to someone else. You write, in the entire Romanov story, there is no more enigmatic, elusive figure than Vasily Yakovlev. And I hope I got the pronunciation right. Yakovlev. Ah, See, I was close. (laughs) The uh, commissar who was sent to escort them to Ekaterinburg. There have been all kinds of quite ridiculous and fanciful suggestions that he actually was a double, double, treble agent working for the British or the Germans or someone who actually was going to scotch the plan to take the Romanovs back to Moscow and miraculously get them out, you know, along the Trans-Siberian Railway to Vladivostok or spirit them out of Russia. I mean, it's so much nonsense written about Yakovlev. In fact, this man was an absolutely dedicated Bolshevik commissar who was hired to do a job. And basically, his job was to get the Romanovs on a train alive to Ekaterinburg. And that's what he did. But he had to do it by a very roundabout route because there were various renegade Bolshevik, very extreme Bolshevik groups in and around Ekaterinburg who wanted to get hold of the Romanovs and have control of them themselves and probably just take them out and lynch them. You're enjoying my chat with Helen Rappaport, author of The Race to Save the Romanovs, The Truth Behind the Secret Plans to Rescue the Russian Imperial Family. Visit her at HelenRappaport.com, and you heard her mention her Twitter handle, which is Helen Rappaport. Newsweek writes of The Race to Save the Romanovs, quote, Rappaport, a historian, turns the question of why European relatives and allied governments failed to save Tsar Nicholas and family into a thriller, full of juicy tidbits for Romanov completists. 
Helen, questions about the czar's European relatives come up again and again in the race to save the Romanovs. Mm. One of those cousins happens to be the Kaiser of Germany, who has been waging war against Russia and his allies. You just mentioned that there's this conspiracy theory aimed at the Tsarina and at Rasputin. You title chapter nine with the quote, I would rather die in Russia than be saved in Germany. Who says that? And what should it tell us about the fate of the Romanovs as it relates to the royals? Well, that was Alexander. She said she'd rather die in Russia than be saved by the Germans. And she said it when word was smuggled into her when they were in Tobolsk. That was between August 1917 and the spring of 1918, that the Germans had been making representations perhaps to help get them out and this is one uh, one of the uh, again to go back to all the stumbling blocks in this story one of the huge stumbling blocks is even if the germans who by the time they had the brest litovsk treaty and, and russia left the war and made a peace treaty separate one with germany even though the germans would have had a degree of leverage over the russian governments at that time over lenin's government to perhaps insist that Romanovs be allowed free. The Romanovs themselves despised Kaiser Wilhelm. Nicholas and Alexander, I mean, Nicholas said around the same time Alex made that remark, he'd rather cut off his hands and be forced to sign the Brest-Litovsk Treaty with Germany and accede to any deal with the Germans. As far as they were concerned, the Germans were anathema. They did not want to have any truck with them. And yet, in a way, by 1918, the Germans might have been their best hope of getting out. But the problem with getting the Romanovs out for all the different governments involved, whether they were on the German side or the Allied side, was the issue of interfering in the internal politics of Russia. And they were all a bit tentative about that. Did they ever think about going somewhere that wasn't in Europe, wasn't a European country? I know the logistics still would have been a pain, but even though Russia is so massive, you think there's nowhere that they could get to. There's no there's no way that they could move across one of those other borders or find some other place. I know it's that kids far. are slowing them down too, I guess, uh, somewhat. Well, not not as much the kids. Alexandra was a very sick woman. Hmm. Alexei, when he, he, you know, at times was not very well. But, you know, even to get them, say, and I talk about in the book, one of the plans hatched by these rather inept groups was that they they wanted to try and spirit the Romanovs away south, down to the, one of the Russian republics, not republics, they're republics now, like Kazakhstan or somewhere, you know, across the Russian steppe, which would have meant hundreds of miles on horseback for this family. And it just wouldn't have worked. The, the trouble with the Romanovs is I think they really, really, in their hearts, did not want to abandon Russia. And when the chips were down, I think if someone had said, look, you, we'll get you out, but you can never return. I don't know. I have a feeling in my bones they would have said, we'd rather die here, actually, than leave. They love the country so much. It was part of them. Almost like leaving behind one of their family members, I guess. We talked about what a tight family they are. Mm. It seems like that was part of their family, which makes sense. 400 years, your family has run Russia, been the been the monarch of Russia. It can't be easy to just walk out and as much as you might like to be that country gentleman to go and do it in a whole other country. No. It seems like it was probably was impossible. In fact, one of the reasons, actually, that the two eldest girls, 
who, when they died, were 22 and 21 years old. And one of the reasons Olga and Tatiana had not yet been married, which most young royal um, princesses and grand duchesses would have been, was because they did not want to leave Russia and they did not want to be taken far away from their parents. So Nicholas and Alexandra have sort of frantically been going through the list of eligible candidates, and there weren't many uh, who had a decent track record and were above reproach. And the thought for any of the girls to have to leave Russia and the family and go and live in some strange uh, alien royal court was anathema to them. They would rather have been spinsters at home with mum and dad. I thought that when you said about them wanting him wanting Nicholas wanting to be a country gentleman, I thought mm. that would have opened up their worlds too. They could have maybe married whoever they wanted. Maybe kind of would have been short term. They still would have been thought of as as princesses, but it it might have just opened up their life where they could have lived for themselves and been able to stay yeah. where they were. But it just wasn't in the cards for them. Yeah. Well, the sad thing about the girls is during the war years before the revolution. You know, the eldest two in particular were working as nurses and very dedicated nurses. And they kept falling in love with all their officer patients, you know, men way below their station, you know, in the aristocratic scheme of things. And I kept finding myself thinking when I wrote my previous book about the four sisters, if only those poor girls could just have been allowed to marry the person they love and make a morganatic, you know, a non-aristocratic marriage and be happy why you know this obsession with having to find an aristocrat or another prince or another duke for them well the only one they they remotely came close to was in 1914 when the romanov girl went across to romania for olga the eldest daughter to inspect prince carol who would be the um eventual heir to the romanian throne and she didn't like the look of him and he didn't like the look of her but, you know, if they had done, this is the sad thing, if they had liked each other, Olga could have been married and safe before the revolution even happened. It's such a story of what ifs. I find this often in a tragic story where you say, if, if this just this little thing had gone wrong, and yeah. it, it makes you a little bit afraid to leave the house because you wonder in your own life, even if you aren't the czar of all the Russias, that little things that you do, little decisions, am I going to get on that bus? Am I going to go to that party? Am I going to have one more drink? Am I going to marry this person at this moment in my life? It, it can change everything. And in their case, it can change world history. Yeah. It's an amazing sweeping story. But in the end, they're also just people. They're just a family here, and they're yeah. they're ill-suited to this. And to watch them throughout the book, hoping for them to get away, even though we know the end, this book teaches us the method of that. And it teaches us how to debunk some of these myths and, and see that true story instead of just, as I said, seeing them as this black and white bearded face in the case of the czar and his interchangeable daughters and not being able to pick them out and know their true story. I was happy because I added a whole room onto my house of historical knowledge, my mental library of historical <laughs> facts yeah, that well, I, I realized was wrong. I've always been interested in, in them from the purely human angle of a family what interested me and the reason I wrote um, Four Sisters was fascinated by the dynamic of that family, their intense love and loyalty to each other, how those four sisters totally subordinated themselves to the needs of a sick brother and a sick and domineering mother. And those girls were not an anonymous land collective. 
They all had individual personalities and they were charming and lovely and interesting and I felt they deserved to have their story told. And so I told it in that book. And um, the same thing interests me in the, in the end. Well, it just makes it all more tragic. In the end, you know, those last two years, they were absolutely helpless pawns at the mercy of politicians and royals and the revolutionaries and the weather and distances and 101 things that all, in a way, conspired and accumulated to make it impossible to save their lives. And okay, that you know, in the end, you, you can say, well, what does it matter? Millions of people died. Millions and millions of Russians died in the revolution and the civil war that you know, between 1917 and 1920. They were just seven people among many. But the thing about their death, their murder, is that they do, in a way, kind of represent the horrors of what was to come, the Red Terror and the murder, that the savagery of the early years of Bolshevism. And also the thing that's in people's minds is the murder of those innocent children. Why did they have to kill the children? People ask me that all the time. The fact that millions of others died doesn't mean that the individuals aren't important. And I exactly. feel like when, when people say that, it's as if saying, well, I only have room in my heart to care about other people and there's millions. And we're getting dangerously close then to Stalin's, well, uh, one death is a tragedy, a million is a, is a statistic. Yeah. Or Lenin telling Emma Goldman when she visited and she said, well, this is not the revolution that we fought for. You're massacring people that you can't make an omelet without breaking some eggs and don't be so sentimental. Mm. And I think that even though it's easy to set up walls for ourselves in our heart and say, well, they don't deserve a place. So we should have room for all of these people. Mm. They're human beings. They're a family. They didn't ask to be born into this family. This was just their lot in life. That leads me to my next question, which is you record in the book that there's not any popular support in England for giving the czar and his family sanctuary after the revolution. And yet, it quickly becomes conventional wisdom to lay all the blame right at the royal feet of King George and say, mm. well, he could have rescued him. And, and look at this. He didn't do anything for his cousin. And we talked about news and, and how things get twisted. And, and I was just talking about me as a person. It's easy to do that to, for us to flip on a dime when things go wrong and suddenly failure is an orphan and success has uh, you know, so many fathers. Mm. How does the race to save the Romanovs clear up the British government's role in the Russian imperial family's fate? Well, I do think George V has quite clearly been made a scapegoat. He's been made the whipping boy, you know, for the failure to save the Romanovs. Oh, the British king's government offered asylum. Well, actually, they offered a refuge, and it was always only for the duration of the war, because the Romanovs would not, as I've said, would not have left Russia forever. And they went, They accepted the offer on the reassurance that it was only what, until the war was over and they could go back home. Now, George's government made that tentative offer already very anxious about the repercussions. George, people forget, was a constitutional monarch. He had absolutely no power to make a big executive decision and suddenly all of the British Secret Service or anyone else to go off and rescue them. The only way in which he could act was to support and encourage his government one way or the other. Well, initially he supported the idea because the British government was the one that made the decision 
as the ally of Russia. It was down to the government to say, as your ally, we will accede to your request to take the Romanovs in. But George got very, very anxious about this. And the reason is that ever since Bloody Sunday 1905, what's sometimes described as the First Russian Revolution, where protesters in the streets of uh, St. Petersburg then were, were attacked and mown down by Cossacks, Nicholas and Alexander's reputation abroad was absolutely at its lowest point. He was referred to as Nicholas the Bloody, the bloodstained Nicholas. They had had the worst possible press in Europe for the last, well, Europe and America for the last 12 years. They were reviled. And this was the big issue for George, that they were so unpopular, there was so much antipathy towards them. The left wing was saber-rattling and saying, you know, if you allow bloody Nicholas to come here, they'll There'll be protests on the streets. The ultimate thing that George was faced with was the threat that his own throne might fall. Now, perhaps that was exaggerated. I certainly think it was built up to be more than it actually was by his very devious and Machiavellian private secretary, Lord Stamperdon, who whipped up George's initial anxiety to absolute paranoia that if he had the Romanovs in Britain, his throne would be endangered. So George was manipulated in many ways into reneging on his support for the asylum in Britain. But it wasn't up to him to either offer it or withdraw it. That was done by his own government. He had absolutely no absolute power. No, he didn't have any power, really. And yet he's the one it's laid at his feet. Mm. There is a war going on, and you can understand why in that moment people would have felt this was one family, one royal family, and there's so much going on. But for us looking back, I think we've had 100 years to find a little time here. Fortunately, you did in the race to save the Romanovs to tell their story and to tell it accurately and to get it beyond this flash of a gun and bayonets. And that's one thing I always try to do when I read a history book is not to find people who die tragically or violently by their deaths. That's why I push that a little bit to later in the interview to get to know these people before we set up these gruesome details of their demise. Throughout the race to save the Romanovs, you debunk the darkly romantic notion of the family's death as you have each time you've referred to their deaths as a murder. Mm. You say it's not an execution or Mm. an assassination. As I read your description, the word massacre came to mind. You can tell me if that's accurate, but how do you piece together this butchering that's done in private, in secret? People don't want to talk about it. It's really horribly botched. How did, did you find those details? Well, I wrote that part of the story actually 10 years ago because my very first book was, I've written three Romanov books, was called In America, Last Days of the Romanovs. But here in UK, it was called Ekaterinburg. And it was a short two-week scenario, the last two weeks of their lives in Ekaterinburg and the countdown to their murder. And I wrote about the murder in great forensic detail because I talked to a ballistics expert who acted as a, you know, a special uh, eminent uh, expert witness in court cases and things. He knew the ballistics of it. He understood what happens to human bodies when you put, you know, uh, the Romanovs plus their three servants in a room and start wildly shooting at them. I went right through the grim and gritty detail 
of how they were murdered. And I got, I still get really annoyed when people talk it, about it as an execution. Well, they weren't put on trial. They weren't given any chance to appeal. They weren't given legal representation. There was, you know, no judicial process here. It was a murder, pure and simple. And they weren't lined up in a nice line and bang, 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 you're dead. It was an absolute, awful, botched, hideous massacre. But it, it took a lot of work to understand what went on in that room. And we're not without eyewitness accounts of it. Eventually, in the Soviet era, all these murderers, quite a few of them, gave statements, including Commandant, about what had gone on and how, how what had taken place in the basement room. Because they were proud, you know, they'd uh, fulfilled the will of the revolution to exact revenge on the Romanovs. So there were accounts of, of um, what happened. And I read them all very carefully and compared them and pieced together a scenario for what went on in that room. But I didn't want to repeat it in this latest book because obviously I don't want to say the same thing again. But there is a lot of detail on the actual planning and carrying out of the murder. So violently and hastily done, they're dragged down, there's... There's so much blood in that room. It really is a violent image. And I was glad is probably not the right word, but I felt a responsibility to bear witness to the real history because mm. I think we've seen movies and we've read quick descriptions of them and you picture it all over very quickly, which is partially because of these myths, partly also because nobody wants to see what, what happens to them. Nobody wants to witness something like this unless you're a sadist. And it is important for us to remember, especially since it's relatively new. They only recently discovered their bodies. It's actually so impressive that they were able to make any kind of forensic mm -hmm. examination of them and understand things like where the bullets hit them, which gives you an idea of just how many bullets there were. This wasn't just one in the back of a head, and it, it's over for them quickly. No, no, they all had to be, uh, well, some of the girls actually had to be bayoneted to death. Uh, it was really quite hideous. The only one who had a quick death was Nicholas, because all the assassins, you know, wanted to be, lay claim to being the one who killed Nicholas, so they all fired at Nicholas first. But it, it was really barbaric what they did. And yet, you know, 100 years on, there are still people out there who persist in claiming that someone, any or all of them, miraculously got away. Yeah, it's just a, a fun myth, but it kind of makes them zombies. Oh, but it's annoying. It, yeah. it, it just really, really annoys me to so deny historical fact, common sense, for heaven's sake, and also to refuse to accept extensive scientific testing. And acknowledge, you know, the truth of the science. It, 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 there are some incredibly stupid people out there <laughs> uh, who insist that they all got out of Russia and all went their separate ways and lived happily ever after. Yeah, it's not only that people are completely ignoring the facts and the truth, but it's a form of desecrating a grave not to admit what really happened to them and act like, mm. oh, this was all just a, a lark and... This is the real history is the cover story. You know, we have DNA testing now. We have documents that are released since the fall of the Soviet Union. You describe these tedious conspiracy theories and how they persist. How do you 
go about discussing this topic with people who are enthusiastic about the story, you hope they want to learn, but you could easily spend your first hour just lecturing them and just correcting the things that they have that are factual errors. How how do you go about that? Because I imagine it's a challenge. I don't. (laughs) (laughs) Because I don't give them my precious time. I'm not going to waste my precious time trying to dissuade people who have set their minds on these absolutely crazy claims also to be truthful one or two of them have been extremely abusive to me and my work Hmm. i've had emails from these conspiracy theorists who say your book's a complete waste of time it's a you know there's a load of lies they all escape why are you bothering to write this book it's meaningless they are so arrogant but their arrogance is based on utter stubborn ignorance and the one thing I would challenge them all with, if, if I had a one-to-one conversation, and I, I have to avoid them because they drive me nuts, is, <laughs> okay, you're trying to tell me that seven Romanovs all escaped that massacre in Ekaterinburg. Whose bodies were they then? Who did they kill? Where did they find a family of man, wife, and five children similar to the Romanov children? enough to be convincing. And how did they actually get seven people out to safety in one of the most belligerent, politically extremist Bolshevik (laughs) centers in Russia? I mean, it just does not stand up to scrutiny. And and the other thing, of course, there have been several claimants to be Alexei. And I, I, I would say to them, are you telling me that a hemophiliac child who probably at most would have survived maybe to 16, 17 years old, got out through, you know, the civil war in Russia, through all that turmoil, without another episode of bleeding and dying. And it's just so, so stupid. And it, it makes me angry because ultimately it's disrespectful of the Romanovs themselves. And, and we have to now, and I feel this very passionately, with the anniversary coming soon. We've got to let go of this because all these escape fantasies are fantasies and they are the product of our latter-day wishful thinking. Because when you look at the evidence, when you really, really look at the logistics, there is no way anyone could have got those seven people out to safety. I don't believe, anyway. And if you want to read fiction, I have plenty of great fiction authors on the air here. So people have no trouble finding fiction. There's no reason to fictionalize this 100th anniversary of this massacre of the Russian imperial family, which is July 2018. I have the book here. People can hear me. This is one reason I like to keep the book handy. As you're talking about people who disparage your work, there is from page 305 to 363 here in the race to save the Romanovs is all notes. So, and these are all primary sources. This is all you referring back to concrete sources. So yeah, a lot of research. Yeah. I love a lot of research. So your certainty people out there who feel like that doesn't, doesn't make for facts. There's a cartoon, which I'll also send you on Twitter since we're connected on there and you're on there at Helen Rappaport and it's a game show set up as, and one woman is speaking and another man is spoken and the, the, the MC of the show, the host of the show says, I'm sorry, 
Helen, let's say. Your answer is factually correct, but Bill here yelled louder. And so he gets the points on the show because <laughs> he yelled yeah. the loudest. So yeah. very much like how things happen here. And I have those exchanges often online with people and you get you get called names and it's just so easy to. But mm. as I said, if you're wrong about something, why? what does it benefit you? What does it profit you to continue carrying that myth? Mm. Now, we started our conversation asking what drew you back to the Romanoff story. I love your passion. It comes across in every page of the book. I'd like to close by giving you a chance to make your pitch to readers who have minds open, who maybe have heard some of these myths and things, and they're they're just not invested in it. They just haven't done your research. They're sort of like me when I started, where I didn't realize I was carrying around myths of the Romanoff family. Why should they pick up the race to save the Romanovs and separate the facts of their deaths 100 years ago from all the fiction? I just say that till now, I think everyone has assumed that the case of whether the Romanovs lived or died is a very simple, cut and dried matter of either rescuing them or not rescuing them. And it was all down to one king or one man. You know, George V might have been a moral coward, but he did not have the power, even with the best will in the world, to help his Romanov cousins. And they were close cousins. I just would ask readers, please forget about all the myths and legends. Forget about Walt Disney's Anastasia and Ingrid Bergman and all those movies that have sold you this chintzy idea about the Romanov. All those movies that have... Uh, suggested that their deaths were a quick bang, 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 and that's it. It's, they're dead. The whole of this story is much more layered, much more complex. And and I think, you know, if people want to really understand what happened, they've got to read my book because there are so many layers to this story, particularly the political subtleties, the political pressures, all the diplomatic interchanges. This story needs to be read in much more detail to come to a real appreciation of just how difficult it would have been for anyone to get the Romanovs out of Russia. Well, Helen Rappaport, author of The Race to Save the Romanovs, thank you for taking the time to chat about the Russian imperial family's tragic final days and write this chapter of the Great War that has remained stubbornly untold. I really felt like this was an incredible book, just an incredible piece of history. And I went into it, as I've mentioned a few times, with those myths in mind, just having picked them up out of the ether in the world. And I really was swept up in this story. I really enjoyed it. I wish you the best of luck with the book. And I want to thank you for this incredible piece of history and all of your hard work and for setting me straight about this pivotal event of the 20th century. Well, thank you. It's wonderful to talk to someone as perceptive as you who can see and understand what I was trying to do with this book because I feel very passionately that this story, this part of the story, should be properly understood and we should really and finally let go of the myths and the fantasies. Again, the book is The Race to Save the Romanovs, the truth behind the secret plans to rescue the Russian Imperial Family. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com, and we hope you will click through there, or even navigate using the Amazon banner on our homepage the next time you purchase anything from Amazon. 
you go to historyauthor.com, that banner slipstreams you through to Amazon, and Amazon.com gives us a small portion of every dollar, pound, or ruble you spend at no additional charge in your shopping cart. For just those few extra taps of your finger, you can help us keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. My thanks to Helen Rappaport for joining us and for all of her passion in bringing us inside the effort to rescue the doomed Russian czar and his family. Visit her at HelenRappaport.com or at HelenRappaport on Twitter. And while you're at it, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at HistoryDean, Facebook.com slash HistoryAuthor, or you can go to our Instagram page and see that picture of me flashing the book cover outside the Russian tea room. Well, that's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us in 14 days, if not sooner, for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular 